Is it rolling, Bob? Talking Dylan. He's your host, Lucas Hare. He's your host, Kerry Shale. But on the digital Bob phone from California, he's our guest, writer, film producer, and scholar, Jonathan Taplin. There's an evening haze setting over the town, starlight by the edge of the creek. The buy-in power of the proletariat's gone down. Money's getting shallow and weak. The place I love best is a sweet memory. It's a new path that we trod. They say low wages are reality if we want to compete abroad. My cruel weapons have been put on the shelf. Come sit down on my knee. You're dearer to me than myself, as you yourself can see. I'm listening to the steel rails hum. Got both eyes tight shut. Just sitting here trying to keep the hunger from creeping its way into my gut. Meet me at the bottom. Don't lag behind. Bring me my boots and shoes. You can hang back or you can fight your best on the front line. Sing a little of these working man blues. Thank you, John. That's the first time anyone's approached that particular number. Yeah. Why did you go for that? <laughs> well, I thought it was kind of timely. This mm. is Bob putting himself in the place of a working man who doesn't really understand what's happened to him. And he's being told that the buying power of the proletariat's gone down. He knows that. And he's told that the low wages are reality because we have to compete abroad. This is something that workers, at least in the United States, hear all the time. And of course, this was written in 2006. So I think it's pretty prescient in the way that he kind of pre-saw both the 2008 mini depression and, and what mm. we've been going through for the last year. Ooh. Well, in fact, didn't he mention, what was the Born Again song, Luke? I'm, uh, I'm relying on you. The one where he talks about sheiks who... You uh, know, slow own, Train, own, I guess. I guess, yeah. yeah, it was Slow Train. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he's, that's kind of typical for, yeah. for him. And presumably that, uh, that also, well, I'll just, I'll segue very briefly into your book, Move Fast and Break Things, which is about Facebook and Google and Amazon taking over the world. Do you have anything to say about, about those guys uh, and Bob? Well, I think that's part of the problem is that inequality has come about because as more and more of the economy becomes digital, fewer and fewer people own the, the means of production and you need fewer and fewer people. You know, we're probably just at the beginning of a cycle where artificial intelligence financed by Mr. Bezos and Mr. Zuckerberg and Mr. Thiel and all of these characters will replace lots of people. You know, I mean, I have this theory that we're living a, with a new class called the precariat, which is what Bob is talking about. And the precariat live a very precarious life. It's the character in this song. And the definition of that is, do you live above or below the API? The API is the application program interface. If you live above it, you tell computers what to do. So you're a programmer or you're a web designer or something like that. If you live below it, computers tell you what to do. And that's the kid that works in the Amazon warehouse. That's the person who drives for Uber or Lyft. And eventually, all those jobs will actually be replaced by robots. You know, if yeah. the computer can tell the human what to do, pretty soon the robot will get to the level of dexterity that it can do all the jobs of going to find things in the warehouse and put them in a box. 
Whoa. Well, <laughs> to go back to maybe simpler times, as this is a Bob Dylan podcast, right? tell us about where you're from, your background, and more importantly, when you first encountered Bob Dylan. I'm from the middle of the country, Cleveland, Ohio. I went east to go to school. Uh, eventually found myself at the age of 18, ready to go to Princeton University, which is in New Jersey. And I had been a fan of Bob's since 1963. And my brother was a friend of a guy named Paul Clayton, who was a very famous ethnomusicologist and who was a, a friend of Bob's. And so yeah. I decided to go to the Newport Folk Festival have in 1965, having no idea what was about to happen there, of course. And Paul Clayton got me a backstage pass, and I was introduced to Bob's manager, a man named Albert Grossman. And Albert Grossman pretty much controlled the folk music movement in those days. He had clients like Bob Dylan, Peter, Paul, and Mary, Odetta, Paul Potterfield, the Jim Kweskin Jug Band. And I... I went to work for the Jug Band as a road manager, and I did that not only at Newport, but I did it on weekends while I was at Princeton for quite a while. So I was brought into this circle of Grossman's people and was able to observe at close range Bob's decision to decide to go electric at Newport which was, of course, a fateful decision. It was made, at least in my opinion, on the spur of the moment. Uh, it was spurred off by the fact that Alan Lomax had tried to stop the Butterfield Blues Band from playing electric at a, an afternoon workshop on a Saturday. And Bob kind of got a burn his butt. Like, if they're going to try and stop Butterfield, let them try and stop me. And I'm going to be the closing act on Sunday night. And so they very quickly threw together a band made up of Mike Bloomfield, who had played on Like a Rolling Stone, the recording, and Butterfield's rhythm section, and Al Cooper, who was the organ player on Like a Rolling Stone. And they rehearsed a little bit, but not very much. And then on Sunday, they played. And when they played, the reaction from the Folkies was negative to say the least. They booed from the beginning and after each of the first three songs they booed and then Bob just split. He said screw it and unplugged and left and of course that created this like vacuum like oh my god what have we done? We've killed the king and Peter Yarrow who took over the kind of master of ceremonies was ran up onto the stage and was pleading for Bob to come back on stage. And Bob was sitting at the bottom of the steps and didn't want to come back on stage. And eventually Johnny Cash wandered out of the artist's tent with a, an acoustic guitar and handed it to Bob and said, play them a song, son. So Bob wandered up to the top of the steps and played It's All Over Now, Baby Blue which I thought was the perfect kind of kiss-off song, saying to the folkies, look, you may think you can control me, but you're not, and left. And from then on, he set out almost immediately and asked Albert 
Grossman to find him a band. And he had heard from his friend John Hammond Jr. that there were these guys up in Canada named the Hawks, Levon and the Hawks, who could play really good rhythm and blues and were a very tight band. And somehow they found them playing in a roadhouse on the Jersey Shore. Just to go back to uh, to Newport, because I want to place you. We, we've talked to people who've, who've been at that performance, but we've never talked to anyone who was actually at the side of the stage yeah. for that performance, which is, which is where you were, courtesy yeah. of, of Grossman. In your book, of course, your, your wonderful book, The Magic Years, you, you cover the, the incident, the incident that changed <laughs> modern music. And I wondered, did you see Dylan backstage sitting there? Did, this is a firsthand you know, account. We, we don't usually get the firsthand account. We've, we've read all the other accounts. Yeah, he was clearly shaken. He had never been booed in his life. I mean, he had, he had been very easily accepted by the folk music movement. But to have be booed, I mean, I don't think he knew what to think. I mean, I saw him sitting on the bottom step of the Newport stage, and he was just, he was rubbing his eyes, and he was not uh, happy. And you hadn't, at that point, met him, presumably? No. I mean, I had had been recruited to help move some equipment, because the plan had not been for Bob to play electric Sunday night. He was supposed to play an acoustic set, so he didn't need any extra road managers there. But but because they all of a sudden decided to set up amplifiers and drums and all that, I got recruited by Albert as one of the road managers that he had on there at Newport to help move some equipment for the sound check. So I would have had a nodding acquaintance. But, that but was, that's really fascinating that you were actually setting up the equipment. Yeah. I mean, I mean that was just... To, to be setting up the equipment for this. Well, that was just part of the thing. And, and you know, the, the sound check went very quickly. I mean, they didn't give Peter Yarrow, who was trying to do the sound, more than about 10 minutes to really get it right. They were just kind of anxious to get on with it. And so... I will be honest with you, I don't think it was very well rehearsed or it was not very well mixed because the Newport people didn't understand rock and roll. And so they didn't know how to balance and they didn't even have enough mics to, you know, make everything sound right. So it it was very cacophony. And it was only three or four songs, right? I mean, you can see in the film Peter Yarrow on stage saying, our next guest has a limited amount of time. And you can almost say that that's why they're so angry, because he gets a hell of a reaction from that, doesn't he? Well, yeah, but he he went off before he was supposed to go off. He went off after the third song. Uh, then he came back and played It's All Over Now, Baby Blue, and, and then rushed through Mr. Tambourine Man as if he wanted just to be anywhere but on stage. And that was it. And I saw him later at a party... And it, it didn't seem to phase him one bit. It got Pete Seeger more crazy than it got Bob, you know. <laughs> 
This is said quite a lot that that <laughs> not only with Newport but also with with even the Judas evening. I think you know we like to project that he was quote unquote shaken to his core and all these things, but he he seemed to get over these things very very quickly. You can see in the footage in '66, he's visibly laughing in Manchester. He kind of looks like he doesn't give a shit, you know, in in the long game. He used to tell Robbie when it was really crazy, just keep playing no matter what. Don't stop, mm-hmm. you know? And and so there was this sense of we're on here having a battle and we don't really give a damn what the people think. After the Judas, he, he said, we have a picture of him upstairs. <laughs> yeah. I mean... Look, it, it was it was what it was. He was not going to be influenced by the fans, put it that way. So when you were brought into uh, Albert Grossman's circle, uh, and, and I think at Newport, were you 18? Yeah. When did you actually get to meet Bob for the first time? And how was that set up? There was a benefit for Woody Guthrie at Carnegie Hall. And I was the stage manager, production manager. I had been hired by Harold Leventhal, who was another important manager. I had done some work for Judy Collins, who was managed by Harold Leventhal. And he asked me to do the stage managing of this tribute. And much to Albert's consternation, because Bob had been, at this point, out of the public spotlight for almost 16 months after his accident, Bob and the Hawks came and played at that concert. Then I I got to meet everybody. And that was really my first introduction to them. And then after that, I began to go up to Woodstock. And this was in what is known as the Big Pink era. This was the basement tapes time when the band had rented a house outside of Woodstock that had a garage basement in it and had set up a recording studio. It was very crude. It was just a two-track recorder and four mics. And Bob took to it in the sense that he, he had a bunch of new songs that he had written and he wanted to get them down on tape. His music publisher wanted since Bob wasn't making any records at that point, wanted to get the songs out to other artists who were clamoring to hear new Dylan material, artists like Manfred Mann and The Birds and a bunch of other people. So Bob recorded a bunch of those songs with the band. Uh, Then the band started recording some of their early stuff, like The Weight and stuff in this atmosphere of Big Pink. And it was just a very simple kind of woodshedding atmosphere to make music in. And quite frankly, it was, I think it was a teaching time for the band. I think Bob was was acquainting them with a lot of kind of earlier folk, hillbilly, other kinds of music, Hank Williams, stuff that the band had really been a, a kind of rockabilly bar band. And I don't think they had much acquaintance with that earlier kind of music but they took to it pretty well and I think it also influenced Robbie Robertson's songwriting a lot that that period of time I'm glad you said that yeah and then you know the band 
made Big Pink and they were going to go out and tour and I would have gone on that tour with them, managed that tour. But then Rick Danko broke his neck in a car accident. And so that tour never happened. So it wasn't until the spring of 1969 that I moved to Woodstock, graduated from Princeton, moved up to Woodstock, got a house there, and then went to work full time for the band. And then eventually for Bob to take him to the Isle of Wight music festival in August of 69. It fascinates me that around, I don't know, at some point after May 66, and sometime before, I guess, January 68, when that Woody Guthrie concert happens, the the, the Hawks, they they stop being an electric, clean-shaven, rock and roll playing bar band, and they become bearded figures, countrified men who we now know as the band even if they hadn't quite changed their name yet right and what fascinates me listening to all of the basement tapes recordings it it occurred to me when i first heard them you know that bob dylan's teaching them as you say songs hank williams songs maybe uh the old triangle old roy's and the bow and things like this and they're referring to these songs even two years later there's a reference to rising up the bow in in rag mama rag and i'm thinking is it fair to say that dylan sort of created the band as we then came to know them in a way he did but i think that would not give the contribution not, not disrespects them no 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 but but i i think i mean bob was a really good teacher and robbie has acknowledged that in his own book the role that bob taught in teaching them all about the kind of american roots music but also you have to remember that Levon's father in Arkansas played the mandolin. You know, he had a mandolin hanging on the wall, right? And so, and it's not like Rick Danko hadn't been listening to WSM, the Nashville clear channel station that could cut all the way through to Toronto. You know, I mean, the, there were these big radio stations in America in those days called clear channel stations that had these 200,000 watt amplifiers, you could hear them halfway across the country and you could hear them up in Canada too. And so I later on realized that both Levon and Rick listened to a lot of the same music on the same radio station. There was a big radio station out of Memphis too. It wasn't like they hadn't ever heard this music. It's just, it wasn't important to them. Whereas... Jerry Lee Lewis was important. And partly their (laughs) early training had all come from Ronnie Hawkins. And Ronnie Hawkins was basically Gene Vincent and, you know, that school of music. Uh, That's what (laughs) he wanted to play. Just before we, because we're, we're sort of moving into the the year of, of the band, or indeed Bob Dylan and the band, but I've always wondered, I've never heard, I mean, you, you knew Albert Grossman, presumably fairly well, yeah. and I've just never heard much more said about him than that he was a heavyset man who had uh, great taste in music and uh, food and marijuana and wore his hair long, but... Can you tell us anything about the man? Because, I mean, I, I just don't know anything about, about him. Well, Albert had two sides. One was a kind of very protective side. 
if he thought someone was messing with one of his artists, he could be very angry and hard and tough. And and you see a little bit of that in that first Pennybaker film. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> uh, but Albert also had a very kind of funny, sweet side, which he never showed to most people. I mean, one thing Albert did not do was act like a typical show business manager. He was never the kind of pat you on the back, hail fellow well met character at all. He was kept very much to himself and would kind of whisper stuff. And as you noted, I mean, he had some strange quirks. He he wore his hair in a ponytail and, and he had these little glasses. So it kind of looked like Ben Franklin had come back into the 20th century, but with a bespoke suit on you know he liked english tailoring he was very sophisticated he had a rolls royce you know later on he had the very first bmw of a certain kind that was really fast i mean he was he was amazing guy and the sad thing of course was that albert kind of got his heart broken too because you know at some point within about a year bob left him as a manager, uh, then Janis Joplin died in an accident. I mean, an overdose, but it was not she wanted to kill herself. She just screwed up. And that really burned him. I mean, I saw him just change. He stopped going into New York City, into his office. He started spending much more time on the restaurant he was building in Woodstock and the recording studio he was building in Woodstock and the little performance barn he was building. In other words, he was kind of like, well, I'm just going to stay here in Bearsville and let the world come to me. I'm not going to go out there and, and get my heart broken. And so he became a very different man at that point. But I do think he had some qualities that were very helpful, one of which was he thought mystery was important, that an artist should not show themselves too much. And in the early 60s in America, there were these TV shows like Hullabaloo and Shindig, which were just every week, and they were basically rock and roll variety shows. I know you guys had them in, in England too, but yours were a little more sophisticated. And Albert just said, don't ever go on those shows. Not really. <laughs> yeah. You don't, Bob Dylan would never go on Shindig. Yeah. And the band would never go on Shindig. And eventually, if Ed Sullivan really wanted you to go on, then you would go on Ed Sullivan. And that would be it. You know, because the Beatles had gone on Ed Sullivan and Elvis had gone on Ed Sullivan. Mm. So that was kind of the crowning glory of American TV. But that was the only one he would allow you to go on. And he didn't like normal publicity. But of course, Dylan walked off Ed Sullivan. Right. Yes. Yeah. I mean, we, we kind of see a Dylan as as the the man who was in charge of that. But but you're saying that he was certainly led down that path by... Uh, by Albert yeah, Rosen. Albert, really Albert was very definitely somebody who just don't do a lot of stuff. And it's interesting as well about him being heartbroken about uh, Janis Joplin's death. I mean, not a lot of people know that he was her manager uh, and that she came up to Woodstock and uh, and that they were, were quite close. 
they were incredibly close. And he really had thought that she was the next really important star for him after Bob had split. And he had a lot to do with the second part of Janice's career. I mean, Albert was the one who said, we got to get rid of this big brother in the holding company group. That was not going to happen. You know, he thought they were a terrible band. And so he helped find the second band, the Full Tilt Boogie Band, which was a really good band. Yeah, yeah. And then in the early 70s, in 71, you were involved in the, in the concert for Bangladesh. That was a big comeback for Dylan, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, it was important, and he almost didn't do it. The night before the show, we had a rehearsal in Madison Square Garden, and Bob and the Hawks had been playing large venues, but they were venues like maybe the Royal Albert Hall would have been the largest venue they would play which I think seats about 6,000 people, mm. right? So I remember we do this rehearsal and Bob comes and walks onto the Madison Square Garden stage. It's, the arena is empty, all the lights are on. You can see how huge this is. And I think for a second, it was a little intimidating to him. He thought, holy cow, this is big. I've never played something this big. And... Then he started hemming and hawing with George, like, oh, you know, I have to see some people in New Jersey tomorrow. And, and George was saying, no, you don't. You're not getting out of this. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm in this. I don't, I don't want to do this either, but you, you got to be with me, man, or I'm, I'm screwed. And Bob, bless his heart, hung in there. And quite frankly, once they started playing their little duet set of acoustic stuff. It was fabulous. And and Bob got totally into it. And the mm. and we did two concerts on the first of August. And by the second one he was completely into it. And I think in his mind, that became the thing that allowed him to think in 74 that he could go out on the road and do these kind of arenas himself. So by that time, just to make it clear, because I don't think you uh, actually mentioned it, John, that you produced the, the concert for Bangladesh, or you organized Yeah, I did. And it was not easy. Not because of Bob. It was easy because of Bob. It was not easy because Eric Clapton was in a very painful time. He was addicted to heroin, and he was not showing up. So we would have these rehearsals for a week before the thing and he and he kept missing his plane from London and his girlfriend would say he's too sick to travel which is code words that George understood completely and eventually we said well screw it we'll get somebody else and we got Jesse Ed Davis who was Taj Mahal's guitar player I sent a telex to London to Apple Corps and said you can tell Eric he's not needed and of course that was all he needed to <laughs> force him to get on the plane because he was not going to be, you know, left it. behind. And, and he did, he did show up, but it was not, it was not easy. And that's August 71. And then I think within a month, you're going down to the South of France to, to Keith Richards villa in, in Nelcott, you know, and there must be a, a fair old bit of heroin doing the rounds there. 
I mean, was that sort of the sort of dark version of Big Pink that, that they're recording in the basement? There, I think it was coffee and in, in in Woodstock and heroin in France. Well, it, it certainly was for Keith. I don't think the rest of the band was sharing that particular drug, but having just had that experience with Eric and realizing how hard it was to get someone on stage for just one night, when I I was asked to come interview for the position to run the Exile on Main Street tour, and I showed up in Saint-Jean-Cafra at Keith's Villa, and, you know, the meeting was at one o'clock, and by 3.30, Charlie Watts, the responsible one, shows up, and by 4.30, Mick comes and acts as if the meeting was at 4.30. And we start the meeting and Mick keeps sending the butler up to roust Keith out of bed so he can participate in the meeting. And and the butler keeps coming down unsuccessfully, uh, having failed. And eventually Keith showed up and I just knew instantly. It was all the scratching the neck, the drinking endless espressos, all the junky signs were there. His face looked like a map of (laughs) bad living. And I said to Joe Bergman, who was their kind of major domo, I said, look, I know I haven't been offered this job, but I'm just going to withdraw my nomination, (laughs) please. Because I, I thought... One day was bad, but having to do that every day for three or four months would just, it falls under the life's too short rubric. And so I I declined and went home and had some other adventures with Mick, but not, you know, I, I mean, I don't regret not going on that tour. I'll tell you that. I mean, there presumably there were... There were a lot of drugs on the uh, the tours that you did do with the band because some of the members uh, uh, of the band were well. Were heavily I mean, that. look, Levon's and Rick's addictions. I mean, Richard had been an alcoholic from the beginning. I mean, but he he was not a day drinker in sixty eight, sixty nine, seventy. But by late seventy, early seventy one, he was a day drinker, and that's when you know you got problems. Rick and, and Levon discovered these white powders, both cocaine and heroin. And that was part of my reason to want to leave behind that, especially after Bangladesh, and try something new and go out to California and see if I could make movies. And and then, of course, the Tour 74, which I didn't run, I got it started, but then my college roommate and buddy, Lindsey Holland, ran that tour, and that was very much... Fu- that was Bob in the band. Yeah, that was Bob in the band, and, and Bob didn't do it, but certainly the band was taking a fair amount of cocaine at that time, and I think that was pretty crazy you know and so look it's not easy and obviously drugs destroyed a lot of great musicians and killed some and some like Keith and Eric survived and uh, managed to live productive lives and that's a tribute to both 
love uh, in, I think, Keith's wife helped him out of that big time. And, and from Eric, I think mm -hmm. maybe a, a little bit of uh, religion. You know, he, he kind of had a kind of faith crisis and came around. And, and Eric now finances the most powerful drug rehabilitation center for musicians called Crossroads. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, he learned his lesson. Mm, yeah, I find um, uh, Levon's struggle quite um, moving and uh, what, what little I know about it. And, and as a character, he's such a fascinating character. I saw um, you were interviewed on another podcast that I saw where you were talking about Levon's cancer, fighting his cancer, but also saying that he was basically it was it was things like Napster that really brought him down financially when uh, illegal downloads started. Yeah as opposed to the CDs, um, royalties he was getting. Uh, can, you, can you speak to yeah. that? What's not really understood is that the, even though the band stopped recording in the seven, late 70s, their records continued to sell. And as you know, in the 80s, everyone got rid of their LPs and replaced them with CDs. And so... The royalties, especially for a group like the band where people had to have the whole oeuvre, the royalties continued through the 80s and 90s pretty well. I mean, Levon was making at least $120,000 a year off of record royalties just for himself up till the year 2000. And then Napster arrived, and all of a sudden, the need, if you wanted to hear the weight, you could just go on and get it for free. You didn't have to go buy music from Big Pink. And all of a sudden, the record royalties just dropped off a cliff. It was, like, shocking. And, of course, Levon got throat cancer at that very moment in early 2000. And so he couldn't really perform as a solo artist he couldn't really do movies, which he had been doing to do some getting money. So he was really screwed. And then he got very angry, too, which was sad in the sense that he got angry at Robbie because Robbie was still making money from the publishing income. And, you know, in 1969, it was not obvious that the only people in the year 2000 or 2001 who would be making money were the songwriters. But what happened was that the performing rights societies like ASCAP and BMI continued to collect money from every bar that played music, from every retail store that played music, from every movie that put music in the background and television show. And so the royalties the publishing income continued, even though Napster was out there. But the record royalties just dropped off like a cliff. Now, what Levon's people never talk about is that Levon never asked in 1969 to be co-songwriter of any of those songs. He never even mentioned it. And actually, the one song that he is a co-songwriter on, Life is a Carnival, Robbie gave it to him because he just thought that the the rhythm that Levon had brought to that tune and the feel was worthy of changing, even though Robbie wrote all the lyrics. You know, so, I mean, 
I think Robbie's gotten a little unfairly abused by the Levon folks uh, over something that was not really his fault, you know. Yeah, I was struck in, yeah. the, in your um, in your book where you mentioned uh, just briefly the the difference in Woodstock in '69 between uh, the Grossman House and and Levon's <laughs> house, right. which was I, I can't remember how you described it. I think kind of like a a, a big shack, really. Yeah, Levon's was that he a, just like to kick back and. Yeah. Well, it was like, Levon's house was more like the shack his father grew up in. It was it was like up on stilts and uh -huh. and the one thing it had was the most giant stone fireplace you could ever believe and and Levon would keep it roaring so hot even in the middle of winter you'd have to step outside because it was it was too hot in there. It's such a shame he couldn't make the movie thing work. I mean Sam Shepard and Levon Helm in the right stuff are still one of my favorite cinema double acts you know <laughs> and neither of them is really an actor but it works so well he was great he was also great in coal miner's daughter yeah he was fabulous mm. i mean he really i mean you know for all levon's resentment about the last waltz in the sense that he thought that marty tried to make robbie look like the center of the thing levon got a lot of work off of the last waltz. I mean, all those movie roles came after right. people saw him in the last waltz. Yeah, they, I mean, the camera captured him when he was singing uh, "The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down." That was almost like an acting performance. I mean, it was right. it was beautiful, kind yeah. of heartbreaking, yeah. great. Or even close that up, sequence you know? when he's when he's lighting Robbie's cigarette and he holds the match for what seems it's like so an perfect. age. You thought, is this man the coolest <laughs> man I've ever seen on the screen? Yeah. He must have, yeah. yeah, exactly. And those interviews were what. I mean, I know Phil Kaufman, the director of the right stuff, and he says that's what got him, that sequence, and yeah. when he lights the cigarette and everything. It was just perfect. Oh, really? Excellent. Let's just talk about The Last Waltz for a bit, which, which you produced. And uh, would you like to share, us, share with us something maybe that you haven't written, something about maybe the rehearsals or backstage? Yeah, we did a lot of rehearsals, but the one person who did not show up for the rehearsals was Muddy Waters. And so Muddy Waters showed up and said, I'm going to do two songs, Caledonia and Manish Boy. And because we were shooting on 35 millimeter film, you had to shut down every 10 minutes because that's the size of a magazine of a 35 millimeter camera. So you couldn't do every song. You had to say, okay, there's this song we won't do, and then we'll do the next two songs, and then we'll stop for this song and we'll do the next two songs. So Marty said, okay, well, we'll do Caledonia. So we do Caledonia and then Marty yells into this headphones to which to every cinematographer, okay, shut down and change magazines. But Laszlo Kovacs, who was the cinematographer who was right on the stage right, had gotten tired of hearing Marty talk into his headphone and taken <laughs> off his headphones. And so he continued to shoot. And the song started, bottom, bottom. And all of a sudden, Marty realized, oh, it's I'm a Man. You know, that's what he thought the name of the song was. And he, and he was like, oh, my God, I've left out the most important Muddy Waters tune. But fortunately, Laszlo Kovacs was filming it. And so if you look at the movie, you will see it's one shot almost to the very end of the yeah. song. And then literally as 
Laszlo is running out of film, Vilmos Sigmund in the wide shot comes on and saves the day. So we had the whole thing, but it's 80% of the song is one guy coming in and out and just, and it's magnificent. It's one of the best pieces in the whole movie. It is. It's, it seems like it's old school because you're not doing any of those modern things. No, the, there's the, nothing uh, MTV about it. These six <laughs> cinematographers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, no. It's and it's. Uh, I remember when I saw it. I didn't. I wasn't really into Muddy Waters, although I I realized as time went on that of course I've been listening to Muddy Waters the entire time I was listening to the Rolling Stones and and, and other groups. But I I was stunned by. By that performance, mm. I remember thinking, my God, this guy's just taking this place apart. You know, so sexy and, and just fabulous. I would argue that hip-hop starts from that song because it's a person declaiming. He's half talking. He's not singing most of the time. He's just talking against mm. this incredible rhythm track that just is relentless. And it's also the subject matter, you know, ain't that a man? Right. Yeah, that's what he just right. keeps saying. And, and you know, one of the things that kind of burns me is some people saying, oh, that's such a sexist song. Uh, you know, it's just not right to judge something that was written in 1949 by, you know, 2021 gender standards. Please give me a break. Yeah. Appreciate it yeah. for what oh, it's brilliant. <laughs> And Dylan was up to his, his, his old tricks at the last waltz, wasn't he? Rather like a Bangladesh. He was booked. He agreed to a certain amount of things. And then Scorsese's filming him and, and, and things change. And he goes, he doesn't want to be filmed well, after well, all. Well, I mean, but Bob caused the, the uproar. We had agreed because Bob had a movie that was coming out called Ronaldo and Clara. We had agreed that we would only film a certain number of songs. And Bob was having so much fun that... Instead of just ending, he transitioned into a song that was not planned for called Baby Let Me Follow You Down, which was an old song that he had done. And Rick Danko got it immediately and saw and just went with it. And all of a sudden, this new song starts. And Bob's manager, Louis Kemp, starts yelling at Marty this is not, you're, you can't film this, you can't film this. And Bill Graham literally grabbed Louis Camp by the collar and threw him off the stage and said, keep filming. <laughs> so Bill Graham was my hero that night. Yeah, if it comes down to anybody versus Bill Graham, it sounds right. like Bill Graham's going to come up. No, 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 he, he was a tough guy. So anything else from uh, from the last waltz? I mean, uh, as far as Bob, when it was over, like did, it seemed like they didn't want to leave... Clearly, they didn't want to leave the stage. Yeah, I mean, look, they, they it, it felt and... so good. And then, of course, to finish with that anthem was so perfect and that everybody gets to get a little piece of it was pretty wonderful. It also looks better than any concert film. I mean, this has been said to death, but I have to say, when I first saw it in my 20s, uh, really as a, as a Scorsese completist, I didn't know about the band, but I, I soon found out. But I thought, my God, this looks like Raging Bull in colour. I'd never seen yeah. anything quite like it. And still, I think The Age of Innocence is the only other film of his that I've ever felt that moved by. You know, I love his films. Uh, and of course, he produced Mean Streets, so let's not forget to say that. But right. the, the, the emotion in The Last Wars, it's so tangible. It's pretty wonderful. You know, everybody brought their A game. I mean, I've never seen 
Van Morrison be as perfectly effusive and just carry it on. It was great. There's another sequence that's kind of fun, to, which is the further on down the road, which is Eric Clapton and Robbie having a kind of old-fashioned guitar duel. And, of course, Eric's mm. uh, strap comes off at some point. But Robbie raised his game as a soloist to a level that surprised even Eric and pushed Eric to do an even better one. I mean, it was really kind of a wonderful classic guitar duel between two players. And, of course, you went on to uh, to produce other movies and then and then eventually left the... Uh left the film game and uh and became a, a professor amongst uh, amongst other things it's just it's been quite a it's been quite a journey for you you know from the from the road manager the jim Queskin jug band road yeah. manager well you know it's it's never been boring and it's always been <laughs> I, i've always been open to what the next possible thing will be and that's to me is you know, the secret to having a fun life. You're a survivor. You've you've hung out with so many people who didn't survive. That's um, true. A, a, including uh, Paul Clayton, who you, you yeah. mentioned at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. It's sad that Levon and Rick and Richard are not with us and that Janice is not with us. And, you know, I mean, no, it's very sad. But look, some people somehow had a kind of misapprehension of what being a blues musician was. You know, they thought that everybody's life was Robert Johnson's life. Nasty, brutish, and short. Didn't have to be that way. Uh, what do you think is, is Bob Dylan's secret? Because, I mean, he's hung around, he's had huge amounts of tragedy in his life and that he's known a lot of people who died young or died middle-aged, uh, you know, uh, and uh, drugs have often figured and drink. What do you think keeps... Keeps him going, you know. Why didn't he I think, burn out? I think, he, I think he loves performing. I mean, if you had told me in 1969 that he would still be on the stage in 2021, I would have told you you were crazy. But in some ways, as I wrote in the book, he did love people like George Jones, who performed into their late 70s, early 80s. So maybe it's the stage that mm. keeps you alive keeps you in shape, keeps you showing up. I mean, Bob doesn't weigh 300 pounds or, you know, you know what I'm saying? He hasn't let himself go. He still likes mm. to show up and perform. And some nights it's great and some nights it's not so great, but, but he loves the act of it. And, and I think he'll probably keep making art, whether it's painting or, you know, metalwork or whatever, till they cart him away in that wooden box. Is It Rolling Bob, Talking Dylan is recorded on Zencaster. Engineered by Mark Langley-Smith and produced by Robin Guys. Digital imaging by Finn Guys. Music is by Sam Hare. We're part of Pantheon Podcasts, the music podcast network. Find us on Twitter at IsItRollingPod. The truth was obscure, too profound and too pure. To live it, you have to explode. In that last hour of need, we entirely agreed. Sacrifice was the code of the road. <laughs>